We all want a resilient team of people to work with, but what does resilience actually look like, and how do we begin to create it? On this episode, Keith Ferrazzi returns to help surface the key indicators of team resilience. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 572. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Of course, one of the key competencies that leaders need to be able to do well is to be able to lead teams. And one of the conversations that has come up regularly in the last several years, especially in the midst of the pandemic and so many changes happening in our world, is how do I help support my team in being resilient? Today, the topic of this conversation, so that we can do a better job at not only recognizing where resilience is and is not in our organizations, but also what are some of the key steps we can take to begin to build resilience on our teams. I'm so glad to welcome someone who's been a leading voice on leadership and teamwork for over 20 years. Keith Ferrazzi is back on the show today. He is the founder and chairman of Ferrazzi Greenlight, a management consulting and coaching company that works to transform many of the largest organizations and governments in the world. A graduate of Harvard Business School, Keith rose to become the youngest chief marketing officer of a Fortune 500 company during his career at Deloitte, and Raider became CMO and head of sales at Starwood Hotels. He has contributed to Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Fortune, The Wall Street Journal, and is the New York Times number one best-selling author of Who's Got Your Back, Never Eat Alone, and Leading Without Authority. He is the co-author with Keon Gohar and Noel Wyrick of Competing in the New World of Work. Keith, what a pleasure to have you back on the show. Dave, it's great. I always enjoy you and this audience's such a super important one. So I'm excited to be here. I enjoyed this book a ton. I love the stories, the research. We're going to get into a bunch of that. And the story that really caught my attention was actually really at the beginning of the book. It's a story about a young girl at the time, although she's older now, named Tilly, Tilly Smith. Yeah. I was yep. wondering if you could share the story of Tilly. Well, I'm not only going to share the story, but I'm going to, I'm going to start by saying why it's so important when we wrote this book, we realized that we were walking in, in, the, in the, during the pandemic into a massive, not just disruption, but an inflection point. And what I hope for every person listening is that you can marshal the potential for you and your career, marshal the potential for your clients if you're a coach, marshal the potential for your organizations and your teams through this inflection point. We, we benchmarked with over 2,000 executives, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders on what one needs to do at this massive inflection point to no, never go back to work, but instead go forward to work. And, and Tilly is such a beautiful story. There's a little girl playing at the beach with her folks, and she happened to notice a shift in the tide going out as opposed to coming in. And with that, she had remembered a class that she had taken where she knew that that was a sign of a potential tsunami. Well, she brought that to her parents' attention who dismissed her. What does a kid know? And they were still continuing to play. Well, but she became insistent. She became vehement 
In fact, she went as far as to literally throw a temper tantrum on the beach, attracting attention, embarrassing people, until interestingly enough, even other individuals other than the parents started paying attention to this, this little girl's voice of warning. And they started noticing, yes, it was in fact true that the, that, the, that the tide was recessing. And that in fact, because of this, hundreds and hundreds of lives ended up being saved that day because of Tilly, including, of course, her parents, when the tsunami very soon thereafter came flushing in and wiping out the entire, uh, the entire town. Now, I want you to be the Tilly of your organization. There is a massive opportunity to leap forward to change the way we lead, to change the way that our teams interact, to change our business models, to change our workforce design. All of these things are within possibility, all covered by the book and the, and the executives and the entrepreneurs and the best practices that we collected. This book is your guide to be the Tilly in your world. Okay, so let's look at some of the behaviors that you identify in the book because one of the things that has come up, as I mentioned in the introduction, so much in the last couple of years now is this word resilience. How do I support resilience in my organization? How do I develop resilience amongst my teams? And you've identified some of the key behaviors in the work that you've done and the research you've done that are really are the difference makers as far as teams who have resilience and those that don't. And as I look through these, I mean, the thing that strikes me, we're going to look at a few of them here, but is so many of them are really about the people, the human, the soft skills, as people sometimes call them, behaviors. And they're not really about the knowledge and the competence so much, are they? Well, first of all, let's talk about how we got here. So we all remember how fractured and fatigued we all became with the, the ongoing pandemic. And what I was looking for were leaders that were, that were, building energy into their teams that had energy that was thriving, uh, not just surviving. And working with organizations like Weight Watchers and Headspace and global coaching organizations like BetterUp and, and uh, Ezra and, and just in Ginger, it was amazing how much resource we brought to the table for this. And we had meeting after meeting after meeting, looking at individual best practices of leaders and then massaging those best practices and then reapplying them into teams. So the work breaks down into a couple of different areas. One of the areas which we're not going to talk about today is just personal routines. What were some of the personal routines that individuals adopted? But the big thing that we started to see were two big themes. One big theme was that the most thriving and resilient teams were those that actually shifted their social contract, either knowingly or unknowingly, shifted their social contract to one of what I call co-elevation, where the team committed to each other's success, to lifting each other up, to going higher together. Yeah, they had a business mission, but they also had a mission to curate in service of each other getting there, right? That's a big difference. There's a lot of teams that have strong commitments to the goals that they have individually, but not to the collective. And so the teams that adopted a collective mindset were the ones that were more successful than others. Now, that requires real cultivation of a number of, of resources, uh, humility, so that the, it was the teams actually that were comfortable with the I don't know, with the comfortable with the I need help, that were vulnerable and, and, and willing to share where they were struggling and actually took curative time to do that as a part of the agenda. People at the beginning of meetings 
would share where their energy was, was being lifted and where their energy was being decreased. And then with that, people were listening, not just for empathy, people were listening for being of service to each other and staying in touch on these issues. So a real sense of shared struggle, sharing your struggles as a practice, that became a real source of resilience on the teams. That's one of the key areas that you found in your research is what you've identified as compassion and empathy. And it goes right back to co-elevation that you talked about last time you were on the show. When you observe teams that really have done that and made that a part of their culture, what's different about them and what they've done to get there that the average team doesn't tend to do? Well, it was interesting because when we were in physical co-location together uh, in, in, in offices, teams had small, accidental, serendipitous, organic ways of connecting. You know, a walk in from the car park. You know, how was your weekend? Well, it was really tough for X, Y, and Z. Or the lunch down in the cafeteria or the, or the break room conversation. The teams that really adopted um, the, the humility and the openness and the compassion and the empathy, they curated intentional time as remote and hybrid teams to do that. And as they moved back into a working environment where they were more co-located than they had been during the peak of the pandemic, they continued this. So really quite as simple, something called an energy check-in. I saw these teams go into their chat rooms at the beginning of a meeting and the leader would say, um, everybody put your energy levels into the chat room. And everybody would write zero to five. Zero meant they were face down in a puddle. And uh, five meant that they were skipping on unicorns with rainbows, right? Mm-hmm. And what the, te- what the leader would do is that if anybody had a zero, one, or a two, he'd pause or she'd pause and say, Jane, you know, you put a two. Is everything okay? Is there any way we can help? And Jane might say, oh, no, it's fine. You know, the twins, they were up late last night. You know, they're teething. And gosh, it was just a tough night. Okay, fine. Hope you get some rest. On the other hand, a Dave might share, you know, well, you know, I've got to admit, my spouse has got a pretty difficult diagnosis and we're struggling right now. We think she may need a uh, kidney transplant, right? And that level of vulnerability and sharing wasn't known otherwise. And if you don't curate a purposeful space, this kind of information remains unshared and remains in the shadows, which a team then can't rally around a person, lift a person up, be supportive, empathetic, uh, give them space, et cetera. So it was literally just the honest and accurate curation of time and a social commitment where they literally talked about owning each other's energy, owning each other's well-being, including things like mental and physical well-being. Little things I saw, like a leader putting on the calendar their lunchtime. So I saw leaders who used to put lunch on their calendar. Well, other people would say, oh, that person has lunch. I can stop in and have a conversation with them on Zoom or something. And so people would call them, et cetera. But what the leader started to do is block that time out, not for lunch, but block that time out for uh, mental well-being time. And people knew that that was that leader's time. And then other people started doing the same or blocking time on your calendar when you are doing a yoga class in the afternoon. I mean, correlating to one of the other chapters in the book about high-performing teams were practicing agile processes where people were negotiating outcomes with individuals 
not caring when at two o'clock they put a yoga mat down. Who gives a damn? If the person's getting their outcomes done, we shouldn't be grinding them out as to when they're working or where they're working or how they're working. We should be focused on the outcomes. So those who were gave the freedom and then they blocked the time out on their calendar so that it signaled to the room that this is more than acceptable. It's actually our practice. One of the things that I heard pretty regularly from leaders, especially at the start of the pandemic, was a very genuine and consistent effort to bring teams together in a social way online. They would do game events or virtual happy hours. And it all very well intended. And many of the people I know who started doing that kind of got to a point in a few months and were like, you know, kind of people got tired of that. What I hear you say of what you just described is different than that. And Very I'm, different. I'm, yeah. I'm wondering, like, the leaders who made that shift, who probably went through that same starting point of like, okay, well, let's start with some social things. And then it made the shift to a place of getting into more depth. What did they do that helped them to make that shift? You know, I'll tell you, very few of them did this shift organically. It happened when I saw leaders who had been doing it as a part of their nature. They just did this, right? Mm. Because they personally cared. I saw the practice. I documented the practice. We refined the practice. We shared the practice. And it, it became very conscious. There, the problem with, and I know you, you, you're always caring about what was really missed and where I learned. The problem with a lot of the, the, the pandemic was that we just kept doing the thing we did pre-pandemic, but in a remote environment. And that's a mistake. It's a very big mistake. And what we've documented in the book is how one recreates work for the new tools we have. I mean, there are assumptions that I awoke to. Like, you know, I used to think that collaboration means a meeting. And that was one of the greatest debilitators of resilience in organizations was meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. And when I started to realize, wait, I, I was watching teams in our research. We were watching teams in our research that didn't think that collaboration started with a meeting. In fact, they thought that meetings were abhorred and you should only do a meeting after asynchronous collaboration, collaborating in Google Docs, collaborating in the cloud, sharing information and going back and forth on video. When you give people the opportunity to collaborate first asynchronously, you have a much more inclusive set so more people can be involved. You give people time to think. Introverts are no longer introverts. They have, they have opportunity to be thoughtful. You get bolder answers because there's higher psychological safety than being put in on the, on the uh, hot spot in a room within, in front of a group of people. There's an abundance of reasons why asynchronous collaboration is so much more powerful. And by the way, when you do that, it reduces the number of meetings you have by 30% so that you can block time in your calendar to think, to write, to deal with you know, issues that you need to deal with on your own. And all of a sudden, resilience rises. Right? So it was interesting. You asked me the question specifically, what brought people to this conclusion? I got to tell you, a lot of people didn't come to these conclusions, which is why we think this book is so meaningful and important. Because my fear is that we've gone through this massive inflection point, which should have been a massive re-engineering of the way we work. And we've ended it and we haven't. We haven't re-engineered the way we work. You said the words humility, and I think you said vulnerability a few minutes ago, and that one of the indicators of a resilient team is a team where people are willing to ask for help. 
And some organizations have a culture where that is very much the case or was very much the case before the pandemic. And in a lot of places, I know that's not necessarily the case. What is so important about the willingness of people to ask for help? And if that isn't happening on my team today, what's a starting point for it? So there's two sides to the willingness to ask for help. One is the generous offering of the help, and the other one is the vulnerability to ask. There's a wonderful exercise that puts the two of them together that I'd highly recommend um, anybody listening uses. I call it a bulletproofing. So what you do is in a meeting, instead of having somebody just give a normal report out where they're updating the team on some thread of work, which we, you know, all meetings have some element of reporting out, ask the individual to give the report out with three tenets, what you've done, where you've been struggling and may need help, and where you're going next. So mm. mandating that when we communicate to people about what we're working on, we're always embracing and celebrating transparently the, the struggles, the need for help. So just turning it into an assignment is step one, even if people aren't naturally inclined or you're not, you don't have a culture where sharing that kind of vulnerability is appropriate, work vulnerability is appropriate. There's a wonderful phrase, you know, sunlight is the greatest disinfectant. We want to bring everything hmm. out on the table. But then tell the team who's listening to that report out, when we're done listening to this, we're all going to go to breakout rooms. We're going to open a Google Doc. And everybody is going to answer the following three questions. Number one, what challenge do you have for that report out? Like, what risk do you see? What challenge do you have to offer? Number two, what innovation do you want to offer? What, what idea do you want to give? And number three is, do you have any support or help do you want to offer? So imagine a team that without going into breakout rooms would be naturally fluid with their feedback, their critical feedback with the, of each other, their innovations and offers of support and help. That's a superfood of a high-performing team. But now, instead of expecting it as a cultural shift in your team of 12 people, you've turned it into an assignment, right? So one of the great lessons that I've learned over the years in our research is that you don't think your way to new way of acting. You act your way to new way of thinking. Mm. So all I look for, you know, you're the archaeologist. I'm trying to dig up practices, very distinct practices. This practice of bulletproofing, setting up uh, a report out with vulnerability and struggles, including a mandatory critic critique um, of the of the of the report out, you've now just rebooted your team's culture for higher degrees of candor, higher degrees of feedback, higher degrees of offering help and support, higher degrees of humility and offering where you're struggling. You've really rebooted your team with a very simple practice, and we saw those kind of practices and. You know, what the reason I'm so proud of the book is 2,000 executives and our research team have crowdsourced those practices for how all of us need to live in this post-pandemic world. I had a colleague years ago who had the phrase prime the pump, as in make it yeah. easy for people, give them a framework, give them a process to follow. What you just described, Keith, what a brilliant way to give a team a process to follow versus just assuming that because I said, <laughs> let's be vulnerable, that they're going to know what to do uh, in that situation. And I'm, I'm really curious about one aspect of that, the, the what are you struggling with as part of that report. I, I suspect where there isn't a lot of humility and vulnerability, that there are members of teams 
who would brush by that a bit or say, I'm not struggling with much at all or all, all is going well. I'm curious, like, and when you've watched people do this, is there anything you've seen that a leader does in the moment that kind of artfully helps nudge people a little bit to say, oh, tell me more about that? Well, I think you just said prime the pump. So who's priming the pump? The leader should, right? So when I go back to that conversation of sharing what your energy level is, when I'm a leader of the room, it's, it's beholden upon me to really share vulnerably. If I share vulnerably, my team will be invited to do the same. You know, if I share that my older foster son got kicked out of uh, rehab during the pandemic um, and that I fear that I need to renegotiate my support of him because, you know, at some point I need to draw a line and how much I'm struggling with that and my family is struggling with that, right? That's a real vulnerable share. And it's true, by the way. And, it's, and, and it sets a tone. So priming the pump is leading by example. Similar with where you're struggling, you know, what we saw during the pandemic was leaders didn't mind expressing struggle. And it was the very first time that you saw a leader cry because they were, because their, their parent in a, in a assisted living facility was, you know, they were f- afraid for them, right? They yeah. couldn't go see them or, or, or a dear friend in a hospital or, or um, whatever, you know, uh, th- these are things that we need to pay attention to. Because it was that opening of vulnerability that opened a, cl- a, a crack, a sliver for all of us to be truly more co-elevating and hold on to that. Again, the whole principle was we were trying to figure out how do we not go back to old workways, but how do we go forward to work, not back? And this level of commitment, shared ownership of each other's energy and resilience, that was a new contract. And you know, as I said, it's one of many chapters in this book diving into different issues of foresight, agility, collaboration, et cetera. But on this topic of resilience, I think a very powerful one. Thank you for sharing that and for for leading by example in that way. It reminds me of what you said the last time you were on the show of leadership means you go first. You always go first. That That is a leader. You set the tone for how things work or don't work in your organization. And that's actually a good lead in to one of the other key points and indicators which is candor on a team. And this is one of those indicators that it seems like almost every leader espouses this, that we want to have a team, or or actually, they even usually go further, we have a team where people are comfortable telling each other what they really mean, and we challenge each other. But then in reality, when you watch what happens when conflict comes up or mm. difficult situations happen, the actual reality is really different than that. And I'm curious, how do you know when you go in and watch a team, when your organization is, is helping support a team to get better, what's an indicator that a team actually has candor? Well, you know what? I, that's, you know, in our coaching business, we coach teams. And one of the things we do is we have a team diagnostic tool. Not a surprise. We coach teams. And, um, and I think every leader should ask curious questions. So next, if, you're, if you want to have bold candor that challenges people in the room, like you're talking about, Dave, then why don't you go into your team and say, everybody take out a piece of paper or have a, an anonymous voting document if you're remote and say, write down on scale of zero to five, what is the truth of this statement in our team? We 
challenge each other openly in the room, even when it's risky to do so. What is it? Zero to five. Well, I can tell you that the answer to that question on average in a team is 2.4. So there you go. Let's start with the data. Now you can see that it doesn't exist. Now let's have a conversation. Is that low professional behavior or is that high professional behavior? The fact that we're not speaking up in the room, but that we're likely talking behind each other's backs or sharing to the executive behind each other's backs or just being conflict avoidant overall, is that a high grade professional behavior or is it a low grade professional behavior? I'm sorry, it's low grade professional behavior. There's no other way to to consider it. So now that we have this conversation, the next question is, what are we going to do about it? What practices are we going to put into place? Great. So let's put bulletproofing into place. We're going to do that all the time. We're going to go to breakout rooms more frequently. We're going to create psychological safety, et cetera. So you've got to change the practice to catch up to the mindset. But let's diagnose it by putting a diagnostic tool in place. You mentioned something in the book, if I'm remembering, called a candor break. What does that look like? Yeah, very similar. Like I love asking a team when I'm coaching a team, I'll just ask the question. So let's say we're in the middle of a conversation and I've interviewed people. So I know what people's opinions are. And if I have a sense that we may be holding back, I'll say, okay, what's not being said that needs to be said right now? Hmm. Now, first time I do that, I get crickets, right? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone looks at each other. Fine. It's no longer a request. It's now an assignment. I push a button. Everybody goes into breakout rooms of two. And I give them 10 minutes to discuss what's not being said. It should be said. I tell them that they have to write it down in a Google doc. And then we come back into the main room and we have a very different conversation. That's a candid break. Again, you're providing the framework, the structure, you're priming the pump of going down the path that generally people want to go down. Like we all want to have candor. We all want to have team resilience, but we don't necessarily know where to start from if the person who's leading or facilitating that interaction doesn't provide a framework for it. Exactly. Exactly. Resourcefulness is another word that comes up a lot in your research, which my, my sense of it is it's, it's how teams face challenges and problems. And the distinction I, I really pulled out of the research in the book is that resourceful teams tend to develop solutions at a higher velocity. What does that look like when you yeah. see that happen in practice? Well, and again, I'm going to give you a very distinct practice for resourcefulness. <clears throat> resourcefulness is when a problem comes up, like uh, I'll give you an example. One of our clients and one of our research uh, study clients was having a problem with supply chain like so many others. They were having a difficulty with manufacturing and inventory. And the head of manufacturing brought this to the table. And, you know, this was a problem that was all over, you know, their industry. And one could easily just say, oh, well, what a shame. This is a, um, an intrinsic problem. But instead, they practiced a slightly different exercise. They said, great, let's not just think about this at the executive team. Let's call a town hall. We'll let people know in advance that we're going to be talking about solutions to break the logjam of our manufacturing holdups. And so anybody in the organization who wanted to come could on that topic. And anybody who wanted to invite somebody, even from outside of the organization to join, could. So now all of a sudden we have this amazing 
rich resource of people who care about a problem. And they all came in with a simple understanding. What would break that logjam? And once again, go into breakout rooms, small group. In this case, we had a little bit more people. We had like four or five people in the room because you wanted to have more input in that room that would spur dialogue. And everybody had to come out with you know a couple of great ideas. Open the Google Doc, add it there, and then come back in the main room. Now, I've seen people do this now in the pandemic with hundreds, even thousands of individuals. And of course, you can't do report outs in that case. You just thank everybody and then analyze the information. And then you let them know that you'll summarize it and get it back out to everybody either asynchronously or you'll call another meeting where you'll celebrate some of the cooler ideas. That's resourcefulness, but that's resourcefulness tapping into what we now see is available, which is broader collaboration and inclusion based on hybrid work tools. And this belief that you no longer, your team, to answer a question like that, isn't your supply chain team. It's not your manufacturing team. It's anybody who gives a damn and thinks they can add value. And what we start to see is there are massive insights that will come out of lower levels, you know, innovative ideas. Peter Diamandis, Dave, is a buddy of mine. And what he finds, he actually has a great comment. Oh, let's see if I can get it right. He says, an expert is the person who can tell you exactly why something can't get done that way. <laughs> um, interesting. And because they're so wedded with the momentum of their past, whereas somebody coming in with a fresh view from the outside would, you know, Peter runs the X prize. And uh, what he found was it was actually a pool skimming company in Arkansas that won the X prize for oil skimming in the Gulf of Mexico, not huh. the companies that were actually responsible for environmental recovery in the Gulf of Mexico. So it was, it was amazing what you can get when you really team out and become much more inclusive. And as a result, invite that kind of resourcefulness into the, into the, into the dialogue. Keith, before I let you go, uh, one of the things that I'm curious about is just what you've learned, what you've changed your mind on in the recent past. You've been doing this for a long time. You've had an incredibly successful career. I've I read Never Eat Alone 20 years ago when I was starting my career, and it helped me to build a foundation for interacting with others. As you think about having done this research, the last couple of years especially since the pandemic started, what's one thing you've changed your mind on? Yeah, I'd say two things. Uh, sorry. Um, one of them is not every collaboration starts with a meeting. That's huge for me. That was a big lesson. And the other one was simply partnerships. This was the first book. Uh, I shouldn't say that. I mean, my first book, I had a beautiful partner named Tal Raz, uh, but I fell into that because anyway, long and the short of it, this is the first time I started to proactively understand how to build partnerships to truly crack codes of intellectually important ideas. I'm going to keep doing this a lot as you'll see going forward. What is it about the partnership that opened up new things that you didn't get in prior iterations. I couldn't have written this book without Keon, uh, period. I mean, I've had lots of co-writers with me, like Noel and Pass with my books and others, but I've never had a real collaborative partner like I did with Keon. And it was very powerful for me. And I can't wait to have, you know, one plus one equal three with future projects of mine like that. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much. Keith Ferrazzi is the co-author of the book, Competing in the New World of Work. Keith, Thank you so much for your work. Dave, it's always a pleasure.
If this conversation was helpful for you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 481, How Great Teams Find Purpose with David Burkus. David and I in that conversation talked about the history behind teams picking fights in lots of different venues. It's a fascinating lens into thinking about how, as a team, you can find purpose. Of course, that's such an important part of team resilience. Episode 481 for some creative ideas on how you may do that with your team. I'd also recommend the last conversation with Keith, episode 488, Leadership Means You Go First. Uh, We heard that echoed in this conversation today. Keith making the call to us consistently throughout his work that if we're going to take the role as a leader, it's really imperative that we are willing to do the hard things first. Episode 488, an important reminder of that. And then, of course, uh, no conversation about a resilient team would be complete without also thinking about how to do that in the remote environment. Episode 537 also recommended how to engage remote teams with Sadal Neely. I've mentioned that episode a few times recently. Lots of tactics there that'll be helpful to you and so many of us as we're transitioning more and more to be managing and leading remote teams and hybrid teams in the changing workplace, episode 537 for a lot more details there. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't already, I'm inviting you to set up your free membership. It's going to give you access to tons of the benefits inside of the website, including the ability to search the entire library of episodes since 2011 by topic. And one of the topic areas that is inside the episode library there is team leadership. It is a critical competency for almost every leader to be able to lead a team effectively, to understand dynamics of teams, uh, shared vision, different personalities, team dynamics. There's so many things that go into team leadership. It's why we focus so many episodes over the years on it, and we'll have many more to come. If you, like me, are always looking for ways to get better at leading teams and and even being a member of a team, I'd invite you to go over to the episode library, select team leadership, and you'll find the episode that's right for you among many in the library. It's just one of the many benefits of free membership. The best way to get access to that is just to go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership, and you'll see that and so many other topics that have been databased in the website over the years that'll be helpful to you. Next week, I'm so glad to welcome Nate Zinser to the show. He is going to be helping us to protect our confidence. Confidence, of course, so important for all of us, essential for leaders, and it is something that many of us get our confidence shaking on, shaking on rather every once in a while. Nate's going to be helping us to really think through some strategies on how to protect our confidence effectively. Join me for that conversation with him, and I'll see you next Monday. Take care.